It's good to be together again as God's family to uh, be able to worship together, to look at his word. Uh, I don't know if many of you noticed I was not here last week, um, but just to let you know that there was important work going on uh, with that. Um, all right, where is it? All right. All right, Mark, we're not, there we go. So, yeah, there was very important work going on last weekend. Uh, we celebrated a uh, one-year birthday. He really enjoyed getting into his cake and getting his cake into him and onto him. Uh, we also celebrated a three-year-old birthday, and then there's the big sister uh, along for the festivities. So I was doing important work last week, even though I wasn't here in the building. So what we're going to do for the next three weeks is take a look at the Psalms. I'm going to be uh, with you uh, teaching this morning, next week, and the following week. We're going to look at Psalms 21, 22, and 23. So uh, here is your homework assignment to uh, please read those psalms over the next couple weeks, 21, 22, and 23. Uh, what I'd like to do uh, before we jump into today's psalm, which is 21, is just spend a little bit of time talking about the psalms in general. The Bible is 66 different books written by many different authors that tell God's story of rescuing people from their sin and restoring them to relationship with him. There are several different literary styles, each of which needs to be read and understood differently. There are historical narratives, there is prophecy, there are gospels, there are letters, there are others. And then there are psalms. The psalms are poetry written as songs in which the writers reflect on and express their feelings about their relationship with God in the context of varied life circumstances. The Psalms themselves have varying types, the simplest division being there are Psalms of praise and there are songs of lament, Psalms of sorrow and uh, complaining about the sad state of life in the world. The Psalms express the full range of human emotion from great joy to crushing anguish, from a clear understanding to profound confusion and great blessing to great pain. Some time ago, I went to a seminar with the goal to help me improve my teaching skills. And the focus of that particular seminar was how to teach from the Psalms. And one of the valuable lessons I learned there is that though the Psalms do not proceed in an orderly fashion as a narrative does, sometimes Psalms next to each other often deal with similar themes and build on each other. The series we're doing now arose from my own personal reading of Psalm 22, not too long ago. As I reflected on it, I remembered that training and looked at the Psalms on either side. I looked at Psalm 21 and 23 and found a very interesting and I think very important relationship between them that we're going to explore over the next three weeks. So back to your homework. Please read Psalms 21, 22, and 23. So today we're going to dig into Psalm 21, and before we do that, I would just like to take a moment to uh, pray again and uh, center us. 
Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. And part of that grace is the truth of your word that you have left to us. You have not left us without a record of who you are and your plan as you have worked it out over the centuries. And we are part of that today. And so now as we look at this psalm that was written so many hundreds and thousands of years ago, that you would open our eyes to understand the truth of that word and open our hearts to be able to apply it. So we ask that you would be pleased to guide us today in Jesus' name, amen. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 21, Psalm 21. If you'll notice uh, right away at the top of that Psalm, it's addressed to the choir master, to the choir master. That's another cue, so Carol, it's addressed to you. Uh, the choir master. So this was a song to be sung, and it was a psalm of David. It's attributed to David, Israel's second king. He was called by God a man after God's own heart. And after David, it's very interesting if you read the historical narratives, after David, every king in Israel is judged by the degree to which he, they follow in David's footsteps or not. Um, and so it's a very interesting thing. So David becomes the prototype, the model for which, by which all other kings are judged. It is a psalm of praise. Remember we said there was praise and there was lament. This is a psalm of praise, a psalm of celebration. Now there's something that's important in this psalm that I want to show you, and I brought this thing along with me. Uh, this is a box where actually I store my microscope in. I, uh, many of you know I was a medical doctor way back when I was learning how to do this. I had a microscope, which I still have. The microscope's at home at the table, otherwise I wouldn't be able to holding it up like this for this long. But it has a box and it has a lid, and the lid nicely opens on the box to reveal what's inside, and then you can close it and latch it. But what is it that holds the box and the lid together? There, there's a hinge by which it can turn, right? So the hinge is, is the the device that holds us together and upon which this thing turns to be useful. Well, the reason I'm bringing that up is that if the hinge was not there, these two pieces would not, not only not maintain their proper relationship, but they wouldn't be able to turn on each other and have their function. Well, the hinge is a, is a feature that's present in many, not all, but many of the Psalms the psalm starts out with one theme or direction and then turns to another theme or direction. And there's a verse, there's a key verse right in the middle of those that determines that change of direction. That is the hinge. And Psalm 21 has a hinge. That hinge, and we're gonna look at this in more detail, but I wanna introduce it to you now, is in verse seven. This is gonna be the most important thing I believe that we get out of this today, and that's verse seven. The king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Have you ever felt, or are you feeling now that you're being moved out of place? You're being shaken. Your world is being rocked. Whether by the pressures of life, the circumstances of life, it can be world events, it can be relationship challenges, it can be personal struggles. Well, verse 7 is the main focus of this psalm to help us learn what it means to not be shaken, to not be moved by the onslaughts of life, whether outside 
or inside. So the question is, what hinge does your life turn on? What hinge holds it all together for you and for me? And if this is of concern to you as it is to me, let's look together at what God has to say to us through Psalm 21. So we're going to dig in. The first round of this is going to be Psalm 21 in King David. What prompted David to write this? What's going on in his life that he writes this? Unlike some Psalms, there's no specific occasion indicated. So this reads more like a general reflection on God's dealings with him over time in his role as king. The sense here you get back, or you get, the sense that we get is that David is looking back over his life and he's reflecting on what God has done and is doing in his life. And this psalm is a reflection of that. The psalm actually neatly divides into two sections, verses 2 to 6 and verses 8 to 12, separated by the hinge, verse 7. So let's look at that first section. Verses 2 to 6, the king celebrates God's present blessings. The king celebrates God's present blessings. And look, the language here is David talks about it. He doesn't say, God, I have experienced this. I have experienced this. He talks about himself in the third person. You have given him his heart's desires and not withheld the request of his lips. I believe this is a, a sense of David's humility before God. He's, he's not saying, I, I. He's, he's referring to himself in, this, in the third person. But as you go through this, verse 2, he says, God has answered his prayers. Verse 3, God has given rich blessings, including a crown of gold. Verse 4, God has given life itself, including eternal life. He says, length of days forever and ever. Verse 5, God has given him great glory, splendor, and majesty. Verse 6, God has given him gladness, happiness with life. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. In short, as David looks back on his life and what God has done, his conclusion is life is good, really good. Body, soul, and spirit because of what God has done in his life. Well, the second section changes subjects a bit and goes and talks about David's enemies. And here, instead of the king celebrating God's present blessings, he's celebrating God's future victory. He talks about your hand will find out in verse eight, your hand will find out all your enemies. David knows that there are many in this world who hate God, many who do not love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. He also knows that those who hate God also hate those who follow after God. And David's point here in verses 8 to 12 is God is going to destroy all those who reject God, those who hate him, and those who turn from him. Verse 10 down to the last person. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. God will not relent until all of his enemies are totally defeated and vanquished. And in verse 11, though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. Though they appear to have some success, some temporary success, they will not ultimately succeed. They will ultimately fail and be defeated. But notice something else in this section, verses 8 to 12. It's all in the future. 
Verse 8, your hand will find out. Your right hand will find out. Verse 9, you will make, you will swallow, you will destroy. This is all future. David is aware that there are, these enemies are a present continuing reality in his life, even in the face of all the blessings that God has given him. There are enemies in our life, even though that we have become believers in Jesus Christ, we are secure in who he is, there are still enemies that are a continuing present reality in our lives, even in the face of all the blessings that God has given. For David, those are hostile foreign kings and armies. There are also people in his own household, his own nation who are against him. But he is confident that one day all of these enemies will one day be completely defeated. David is reorienting his perspective to see that though there are enemies all around, they are temporary and will one day be completely defeated. Notice also that David speaks of your enemies. He's speaking of God's enemies, your enemies. And I think there's a wonderful thing here as we reflect upon that. When you belong to God, God's enemies become your enemies, and your enemies become God's enemies. When you belong to God, God's enemies are your enemies, and your enemies are God's enemies. In Psalm 139, 22, David says, I hate those who hate you, O Lord. I count them my enemies. As I was reflecting on this psalm in the midst of the current Ukrainian crisis, Obviously, you can't read about the crisis or hear about it without thinking about NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, of which Ukraine is not a part. I'm not getting, trying to get into all the politics of that. But one of the commitments of NATO is what? An attack on one is an attack on all. That's one of their central core commitments, is that an attack on one is an attack on all. So if you're a member of NATO, and one country is attacked, that's seen by the rest of the group as an attack on all. And I thought that was a very interesting illustration of what is going on here. So an attack on God is an attack on me, but an attack on me is an attack on God. And God will take care of his enemies. So verses 2 to 6, God's richest blessings that David is enjoying in the present Verses 8 through 12, the enemies that are all around him, even in the present, he is confident will one day be defeated. Well, let's go back to that hinge then in verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. So right in the middle of celebrating God's present blessings, celebrating God's future victories, tying them together, is verse 7. He says, I shall not be moved. I shall not be moved. My life is secure, stable, unmovable, unshakable. Why? Because of the steadfast love of the Most High. That word, steadfast love, it's two words in English. It's one word in, in Hebrew. It combines three things, strength and steadfastness and love. And each of those three elements are a necessary part of the meaning of that word, steadfast love. If you have strength and steadfastness without love, what do you have? You have somebody who's very big and who's very persistent, who you don't know if he really likes you or not. 
If you have steadfastness and love without strength, you have someone who really likes you but may not be able to really help you too much. And if you have strength and love without steadfastness, you know, somebody who can help you, somebody who would like to help you, but he's not very loyal. There may be some other things that he's doing at this time and he can't get to you right away. This word it carries the element of strength and steadfastness and love. It's because of the steadfast love, the strength, the steadfastness, and the love of God that David says that he will not be moved. And it's the steadfast love of the Most High. It's an interesting term that David uses here. The Most High means the supreme, the highest, the uppermost. God is not high. He is the highest. God is not one of the highest. He is the most high. He is the one and only. David's security then is in the steadfast love of the most high God in nothing else, in no one else. Thus David, this great king of Israel, is willing to trust, willing to humbly submit himself to the most high king, God himself. David is aware that his security is not in his, strength, in his own strength, his own wisdom, his wealth, or his position, but in the steadfast love of God alone. Now, I believe there's another important observation we need to make here. See if you can notice the flow of thought right after the hinge. So the hinge says, the king trusts in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies and your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath. The mention of God's love in verse 7 flows right into a discussion of his wrath. Ouch. Time out. This is something that's often hard for us to grasp. What does God's wrath, God's anger, have to do with God's love? How can they exist together? Does God have a dark side to him that we need to worry about? It is important for us to understand that God's wrath, his anger against sin and evil, is a necessary part of his love. There is no dark side to God. God's wrath, his anger against sin and evil, is a necessary part of his love. Tim Keller says it this way in his definition of wrath. Wrath, he says, is settled opposition to and hatred of that which is destroying something that is loved. That's a little dense. Let's take that apart. Wrath is settled opposition to and hatred of that which something that is loved. First of all, it's settled opposition. God's wrath is not an explosive temper that some of us have, that it's out of control. It is a settled opposition. It is steady, consistent. It is not, well, it's not an explosive temper. Plus, God loves deeply all that he has made, most notably human beings. So if I love you, I will be rightly angry at, which I do, by the way, there's no, you should know that, right? If I love you. If I love you, I will be rightly angry at 
and hateful toward anything that is destructive to you. If I am not angry at or hateful toward something that's destructive to you, can it really be said that I love you? In the same way, God is angry at anyone or anything that is destructive to that which he loves. So in terms of his, if my love for you, what if you are in the throes of some kind of addiction of some kind? If I do not hate that addiction, if I do not hate that which is controlling you, what if you're suffering abuse at the hands of another person? If I do not hate that abuse, if I do not hate that injustice, can it really be said that I love you? Or if I'm, am I just letting it go? If I truly love you, I will be deeply angry at any person or any injustice that damages you. So God himself is angry at anyone or anything that is destructive to that which he loves, which is us. Starting with sin and death themselves, Satan himself, all that is evil, and all people who by rejecting God are part of Satan's kingdom of sin and death. God was so angry at sin that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. The cross is God's expression of his anger towards sin that is rooted in his love for us. So God's love and God's wrath are intricately entwined and God's wrath is a necessary part of his love because if God is not angry at sin, then can it be said that he truly loves us? And the cross is the ultimate expression of God's anger towards sin. So what's the bottom line here? The bottom line is that David was confident that because of the steadfast love of the Most High, he would not be moved. Because of the steadfast love of the Most High, he would not be moved. Not only would God's blessings continue, but David's enemies would be destroyed. Well, let's look at how this psalm, how Psalm 21 fits into the larger story of the Bible. And when we talk about the larger story of the Bible, it's vital that we remember this very important thing. Jesus said that the Old Testament is all about him. We don't often see the Old Testament that way, but Jesus said the Old Testament is really all about him. In Luke 23, 27, for example, Luke says this, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So anytime we read the Old Testament, after we see what was actually happening at the time, which is what we just spent time doing with David, we need to ask ourselves, what does this passage tell me today about Jesus? Well, where is Jesus in Psalm 21? Well, he completely fulfilled he completely fulfilled every aspect of this psalm. In verses 2 to, two to 6, he experienced God's richest blessings, prayers that were always answered, crowned as the King of kings and Lord of lords, raised from the dead back to life, never to die again, elevated to the highest place of glory and splendor and majesty at the right hand of God, fully enjoyed and enjoying the presence of his Father. And in the second section, he experienced complete victory over his enemies, most particularly Satan himself, as well as sin and death. 
and those people who rejected him and put him to death. Colossians 2.15 says he triumphed over his enemies. And then the hinge of verse 7, Jesus trusted fully in his father's care. And because of the steadfast love of the Most High, he, Jesus, was not moved. He was not deterred from God's purposes for him. So Jesus himself is what this psalm is talking about and is the one who completely fulfilled all of this for us. And only now that we have looked at that original context of what was going on in David's life and how this psalm leads us to Jesus can we proceed to how this applies to you and me. So because of Jesus, this psalm is now my psalm. This psalm is now your psalm. Well, what about verses 2 to 6? Jesus said in John 10.10, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Well, what more abundant life can we get than what is seen in verses 2 to 6? Able to come to God himself in prayer, confident that he hears us, knowing that we have been made heirs of Christ and will one day be crowned to rule and reign with him. We've been given life now and eternal life. We have been elevated to the status of his children to share in his glory, splendor, and majesty. We've been called into a personal relationship with the God of the universe and will one day enjoy his unbroken presence forever and ever. Well, what about verses 8 to 12? How does that apply to us? Well, there are two aspects to this of God's enemies. First, we have to remember that we were once enemies of God. I was once an enemy of God. You were once an enemy of God. But Jesus took on himself the wrath of God that we deserved. If you look at verse 9, Jesus experienced the blazing oven. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. Jesus experienced the blazing oven. He was swallowed up in the wrath of God. The fire of God's wrath and his anger against sin consumed him. He experienced all of those things for us so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus' death on the cross took the totality of God's wrath for us so that we would no longer be enemies of God, but we would become friends of God. Secondly, God will deal with all, our, all of our enemies, all of them. Whether those enemies are outside of us, Satan himself, injustice, hatred, circumstances, family members, co-workers, teachers, fellow students, unkind social media posts, corrupt government leaders, or those enemies inside of us, sin, death, sickness, de depression, anxiety, addictions, mental illness, struggles with identity. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, all our enemies are defeated and will one day be fully destroyed. Because of Jesus, his death and resurrection, all our enemies are now defeated and will one day be fully destroyed. I had to remind myself of this a few weeks ago in the midst of the winter weather. There were a couple 60 degree days and I found myself riding my bike on Umbria Avenue in Maniac Roxborough in the bike lane, I might add. And that's important because this guy in a gray pickup truck drives by yelling at me quite loudly and gesturing obscenely. 
I'm not sure what I did to offend him, but he was not happy. Those moments are hard for me, and they happen fairly frequently. I don't know what it is about people on the road who think they own the road, and it's their road, and bicycles are not allowed to be on the road, but I was not, he was not happy, and those moments are hard for me. And I was reflecting on this psalm. I had to remind myself that if anything needed to be done, God would do it in his time and his way. As I watched this guy's speeding pickup truck vanish in the distance, I realized it was not up to me to nurse my anger, to, to defend myself or avenge myself, even if I could have sped up fast enough to catch up to him. <laughs> but God would take care of what needed to be done with him in his time and his way. And I prayed that he would feel guilty, <laughs> right? The biggest way for him to, be, to deal with this would be to feel guilty and come to the Lord in repentance and confession. But if not, God will take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. But what is the key lesson for us again out of verse 7? It's because of the steadfast love of the Most High, we will not be moved. Because of the steadfast love of the Most High, we will not be moved. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we can experience the bookends. That's another feature of the Psalms. Sometimes the Psalms have bookends. So... The bookends of the psalm are verses 1 and 13. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we can experience those bookends. Look at verse 1. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. And in verse 13, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. David starts the psalm and ends the psalm the same way, celebrating who God is, celebrating his strength, his salvation, and his power saying that he will sing and praise. Celebrating God's strength and salvation. These words of, that indicate exalt and praise are words that don't just reflect emotions, but emotions that are affect our behavior. Emotions that affect our behavior. But what if, like me, as I was going through this psalm, I was challenged by this. What if celebration is not always a normal part of your life? What if celebration of God's blessings is not a normal part of your life? What if you have lost sight of God's blessings in a way that you no longer find joy in life? What if you find yourself shaken, moved, either by external circumstances or by internal struggles. Well, if you're an unbeliever, one who has never turned to God by faith in Jesus, or one who has deliberately turned away, the invitation to you is simple. Through the steadfast love of the Most High, you shall not be moved if you trust in the Lord Jesus. You see, Jesus died on the cross to bear the guilt and shame of your sin. He rose from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death, and he now offers you freely the gift of forgiveness and a restored relationship to him. It's free to you, but it is all at his expense. You only need to receive the gift by confessing to him that you are a sinner, asking him to forgive you, and then committing to live for him with his help starting today. And so I ask, will you do that today? We do that now.
If you're a believer and are easily moved out of place when life happens to you, as so often I am, it is likely that you have become unhinged from verse 7 in some way. So let's just walk through that a little bit to see how we can become unhinged. For the king trusts in the Lord. Well, are you trusting in the Lord? Are you putting your confidence in him? Are you finding your refuge in him? Are you boasting in him? Or are you seeking refuge in something or someone else? Yourself, other people, government leaders, a job, other religions, other philosophies, ideas, food, pleasure, things outside of God. These things will fail you and cannot deliver. Trusting in them will produce anxiety, fear, worry, despair, disappointment. And I believe Psalm 21 asks the question, are we willing to trust in the character of God as revealed in the scriptures, especially when life is hard and doesn't make sense? Well, the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love, do we really believe that God loves us? Do you really believe that God loves you? I mean, if I asked you, does God love you? Oh, yeah, because that's the right answer. But do I really believe that God loves me? Do you really believe that God loves you? Or do you focus on the difficult circumstances of life or the enemies that are in you and around you and conclude that if God really loved you, these things would not be present in your life? If God really loved me, then this would not be happening. What you're saying is, well, God then doesn't really love me because these things shouldn't be happening. And again, doubting God's love for you will create Anxiety and fear and worry, anger, insecurity, depression, confusion. And it's the steadfast love of the Most High. Do you really believe, do I really believe that God is Most High above every power that could possibly exist? God is not just powerful, He is all powerful. He is not just wise, He is all wise. He is not just a king, He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the blessed and only sovereign as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. God is not just high. He is most high. And if we're willing to believe that the steadfast love of the most high is with us, do we really believe that we ultimately will not be moved? If you are shaken by life, if you become, as one of our friends says, when things are not going well with her, she becomes wobbly. If you're unsteady, insecure because of circumstances or something someone says or does, you cannot deal with that sense of being moved or shaken out of your place by just stealing yourself. Or you can't deal with it by having a party. Or if you're familiar with the Rodgers and Hammerstein song in The King and I, by whistling a happy tune. Sometimes we try to deal with the stresses of life by just turning it into a party or a happy time. A couple verses of that song are, whenever I feel afraid, I hold my head erect and whistle a happy tune so no one will suspect I'm afraid. Make believe you're brave and the trick will take you far. You may be as brave as you make believe you are. That may work if you're putting your foot in a swimming pool and you don't like to swim but it's not gonna help you very much in the challenges of life when we're threatened to be moved. Instead of following your heart's fears, you must lead your heart to remember that through the steadfast love of the Most High, you shall not be moved. 
through the steadfast love of the Most High, you will not be moved. So this week, when, not if, when you become unhinged, when you are feeling shaky, rocked, remember that you will not be moved. Not because of you, but because of, and only because of, the steadfast love of the Most High. He has promised to be with us. We will not be ultimately shaken or moved because of the steadfast love of the Most High. He is a God worthy of our complete confidence and trust. So I'd like us to do a little something as we close this out. David says, For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. I'd like us just to do a little something here together. In those blanks, I'd like you to put your name in there. This your first name. This is a statement of truth that Psalm 21 is bringing us. So as we go together, we're going to read this together out loud. Just put your name in there. So here we go. For David trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, David shall not be moved. Let's do that again. For trust in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High. How does that feel? I read that and I say, oh, I'm not there. But that's a fact. That's a reality. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is a reality. It's not wishful thinking. It's a reality. Because of the steadfast love of the Most High, I will not be moved. You will not be moved. So as we consider God's steadfast love for us, I think Paul's words in Romans 8 are a great reminder. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So may you and I remind ourselves daily that through the steadfast love of the Most High God, we shall not be moved. May we remind ourselves that this God is worthy of our full confidence and trust no matter what comes our way. And may we continually grow in that confidence and trust. Amen. Let's close this time in prayer. Father, we thank you that you call us to trust you in the truth that through the steadfast love of the Most High, we shall not be moved. Lord, we all face things that shake us, that rock us, that do indeed move us. But you have promised that these will not ultimately move us. These will not destroy us. They will not take us away from you. They will not take away from our relationship with you and our home in, in heaven and in your kingdom. 
And so I pray that we would focus not on the circumstances around us. We would focus not on the strengths that we try to bring to this, but we would focus on you, knowing that it is through your steadfast love, the steadfast love of the Most High, that we will not be moved. I pray, Father, that as we thirst, as we feel our weaknesses, as we live in fear, as we find that we have lost our way, that you would help us to find our security in you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.